You are listening to Change Agents, a conversation with human rights and social justice advocates on WERU Radio. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Cheryl Townsend Jokes. She is the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor Emerita of African American Studies and Sociology at Colby College. She also is an ordained minister. She's the assistant pastor for special projects at the Union Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has served as a visiting faculty at several seminaries and schools of divinity, most recently, Chicago Theological Cemetery. She will also serve as the Distinguished Professor, Community Liaison and Research Consultant for the Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. She holds degrees in sociology from Northeastern University and has pursued and that goes up through PhD and pursue graduate theological studies at Boston University's School of Theology and has received an honorary direct doctorate of divinity from the um, I'm not going to get this right. And maybe, uh, okay, college. Um, so, uh, m- much of your, much of your work has been focused on, uh, black churches and the women in black church, if I've got it right. Somewhat, yes. I, I, um, African American Christian women in the 20th century, yeah. Hey, um, and uh, so I want to go, uh, we'll still stay in the 20th century, but we're going to go back a few decades. Um, when, when did you first, um, when would you first cognizant of being in a Baptist church, a Black Baptist church? When, now, when I was first cognizant of it, as opposed to when I, when it first happened, um, you know, it, it, it's like being immersed in a pool of water. You know, if, if you spend all of your life in that pool of water, when do you become conscious of the water? It's when you engage other people who are from different traditions and realize that uh, there's some folks out there who don't have what you have. And uh, so cognizant of something into which I would, you know, I was, you know, I was born into a Baptist um basically a Baptist family. My parents were members of People's Baptist Church in Boston. Um, They had migrated to Boston because of World War II. Daddy was stationed at Fort Devens. And so they were living in the south end of Boston and they joined People's Baptist Church. And when I was born in 1947, I was quote unquote dedicated because Baptists don't christen, they dedicate. Um, I was dedicated there. And then when my parents, my parents had already moved to Cambridge and eventually they uh, joined Union Baptist Church in Cambridge in 1949. And, and, and I've just, been there ever since. Um, just so it's uh, clear for all of us, um, both of those uh, churches were um, uh, predominantly, if not all, Black churches. They, they were part of the National Baptist Convention. Um, which is an, Af- an historically Black African-American um, denomination. Um, like many African-American churches, African-American Baptist churches, they were what as they were also what is known as dually aligned. That is, they had membership in both the historically Black organization as well as an historically white organization in the case of peoples and in the case of Union Baptist Church, the American Baptist churches. Uh, So, uh, which is how, and remember when I was born in 1947, um, and it's still the case today. Most people don't realize that even though the great migration moved a substantial 
proportion of the African-American population out of the South between World War I and 1970. The majority of African-Americans have always been in the South. So the majority of African-American churches are also um, in the South. And that is a very predominant way yeah. in which um, we realize ourselves. I thought more of, more of the South as home, even though I was growing up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, before I thought of myself as being Black Baptist. And it was only when I spent a lot of time with my, because Cambridge is a very diverse community, um, we did not have segregated schools. So I went to school with a lot of children who were Catholic or Greek Orthodox. And it was when I realized that my friends who were white and Catholic wouldn't come visit my church. I think that's when I was cognizant of the importance of being, well, at the time, remember, we've only been Black since 1965 at the time, being colored. And I can remember when they told me that the priest wouldn't let them come visit my church. And I said, well, don't tell the priest. And they said, but we'll go to hell. And I said, and I remember sitting there closing my eyes and looking up to heaven and going, thank you, Jesus, for making me colored so I can have all this good music. Because by the time I was 10 years old, I was also deeply immersed in the in the junior choir. And every Sunday after morning service, we went off to sing at programs at other churches, which always had great refreshments. Um, uh, and uh, I so. I just knew being black was being, you know, being black and Christian meant being Baptist or AME or AME Zion, African Methodist Episcopal is what we mean when we say AME or AME Zion, African Methodist Episcopal Zion. All of these are historically black um, denominations that go back to the 18th century. Um, I I just want to ask a a question uh, that I'm interested in because I grew up in Cambridge and uh, and uh, I don't think it took me when I realized that that Boston um, um, had a very small population of black people compared to other uh, major cities um, and certainly had a now remember Cambridge is not Boston. There's yeah. a reason we refer to Cambridge as the Republic of Cambridge. Okay. Well, that, that, that's that's where I was living. But when I uh, you were living in the Republic of Cambridge. Yes. Well, then I suppose we could say there were white people living in the uh in the something of uh Charlestown. But um uh uh so um growing up were you uh, cognizant of um, the civil rights movement, and was it coming? If so, was it coming? But both from family, but also from from going to church. This family, church, and actually school, because we had, and because Cambridge, um, that and and that's one of the reasons I underscore Cambridge had a. A plan of government that was different from other cities, and it included proportional representation voting, which meant that Black Americans in the Cambridge public school system had a history that was different. I had three Black teachers in my Houghton school, my fifth grade teacher, my sixth grade teacher, and one of my eighth grade teachers. And the eighth grade teacher was also the assistant principal of that school. Her name was Miss Regina B. Key. And she was such a fantastic teacher that people would move neighborhoods so their children (laughs) could be in her class in eighth grade. And she was also such an effective teacher that the school committee voted that she did not have to retire and she could teach until she no longer wanted to. And at the age of approximately 83, she had a stroke at her desk and she was such a proper lady. She sat there with her hands folded and um, sitting there very straight until one of the students noticed that something was wrong. And a week later, she had gone to, she went on to glory and people came from all over the country to her. She sounds like a a remarkable woman. Because of those teachers, uh, even though the civil rights movement was not in the curriculum, 
Mr. Warner, who was my fifth grade teacher, had materials on the back um, windowsill for us to read if we wanted to. So I remember reading about the Montgomery bus boycott. My parents wouldn't buy a television because um, they were afraid I wouldn't read. So I would go to friends' houses and watch TV and not tell my parents that I had gone to watch TV. And I can remember being at some Irish American friends' houses where there was new something on the news and this and their mother just happened to march through the kitchen. She was talking to her husband. She said, well, what do those people want anyway? And I being a little kid, not, you know, little kids, you know, you hear somebody ask a question. I go home and I said, mommy, Mrs. So-and-so wants to know what do those people want anyway? And my mother very curtly responded something to the effect that these people just want, you know, to be treated like other people. And I went back and, you know, the next time I was playing at the house and I said, oh, Mrs. So-and-so, my mother said that these people want, and I, you know, I don't remember the exact words, but Mrs. So-and-so and my mother remained close friends for the rest of her life. Mrs. So-and-so, um, notice I'm, I'm protecting their identity because I don't have their permission to tell their story, but she, until she died, my, she and my mother exchanged letters and I still have my she gave me a children's Fanny Farmer cookbook for Christmas one year, and I still have it. So the so and and so one of the things that you know, as an educator, you know, one of the things you learn is answer the question. Somebody has a question, answer the question. And you know, obviously, Mrs. So and So was just you know, why are these people ra- raising all this he double hockey sticks? And my mother, you know, said something about yeah, yeah. we are raising all this he double hockey sticks, and explained it. And they remained, they became and remained friends it's, until it's, death parted them. Yeah, it's a really, really yes. nice story. But that's um, when you get cognizant of the importance of the civil rights movement. And then when my parents, my parents didn't get a television. One of my brother's godparents decided we needed a television and gave us one. I would literally run home from school to watch the news to see what is Martin Luther King doing today. And, and, and what year, more or less, are you talking about? Okay, my brothers were born in 56. So we're talking 58, 59, 60. The other thing, though, I was also cognizant because, and this is another reason, um, because my parents wouldn't buy a television. We went to the library every week and I got my stack of library books. And when I ran out of library books, I would read the paper. And every Thursday we had delivered to our house. Mr. Leon Phillips was the agent for the black newspapers, the Afro-American, the Pittsburgh Courier. When my great aunt was living with us, we also got the Amsterdam News. And in Boston, there was the Boston Chronicle. So these were historically black newspapers. So I would read the newspapers. There were always cartoons in the in the Courier. J.A. Rogers had a thing. And I can remember reading this article. I'm sitting there and my mother, when I was reading things, she would make me sound the word out. You know how parents are when they're trying to make you read better. And I remember saying to my mother, mommy, what's this word? segregation and my mother is like oh boy because this was cambridge massachusetts we had never been to the south my grandmother who i mentioned who's from savannah uh when people would meet her they'd say miss reed are you from the south and her response was yes and i intend to stay from the south um another long story i won't go into but my mother had to explain what this word meant. And I remember the article was about the fact that de jure, which I later learned is de jure, but when you're a little kid, if there's one E on the end, then the um, middle um, vowel is long rather than short. And you don't realize it's two syllables. So that de jure segregation had been solved. But now the problem with school segregation was de facto. And I was, I remember sitting back and saying, okay, what will they do to us next? So, and I think so, I've been asking that question ever since. So you you and I knew that they was the people who were doing the segregating. 
because wow. the way my mother explained it, because we don't didn't have obviously de jure segregation, and I had never been in a segregated setting. Um, she explained it as if to say, well, it means sometimes the teachers would see, sit the white children in the front and the colored children in the back, because that was our language then. And of course, that wasn't what it was. But how do you explain it to a little kid who and, has no reference points? Well, and uh, if we go a step beyond segregation and we talk about uh, violence and murder, in the South. Mm -hmm. um, uh, were you aware of that as um, at what age did you? Um, I think the the violence and murder part, my parents tried very hard to um, shield, shield me um, from stuff. And one of the things that um, that generation, this is the generation, the World War II generation, the people they talk about as the greatest generation. Um, ironically, that generation is also the generation, especially that generation of African-Americans is the one that uh, researchers now understand was one of the most civically engaged generations. Um, they would spell in front of us or use euphemisms when they wanted to talk about race in front of children because they were hoping to push forward, to make progress, to, to in the words of Andrew Young, to lay, lay down the burden of race. So, you know, when they were asking questions, those kinds of questions, instead of saying, well, did they hire a Negro? Did, they'll say, did they hire a club member? And that way, you know, the, and, I, and I used to sit because I was an only child for eight years and listen to the adults spell in front of me. And I learned that if you're a little kid and they spell in front of you, you sound the word out in your head and then don't shout the word out and you get to stay in the room and really listen to what's going on. So, so you, you figured out how to, how to make it work. To stay um, in the room where it happens. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so, so the consciousness, um, I was too young to see the Jet Magazine picture of Emmett Till. Um, all my friends who remember that picture are slightly older than I am. Uh, my 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 mother and their friends used to. Um, so can can we just um, stop for a second um, mm -hmm. to make sure that people know um, who uh, Emmett Till is, who Emmett Till was, and uh, uh, and just in a couple of sentences, even. He was a 14-year-old uh, boy who went um, south to Money, Mississippi to spend the summer with his cousins and ended up getting lynched because um, he was accused of whistling at a white woman. And we now know from her own statement that she lied. Uh, so um, and he and he was um, taken out of his house, murdered and thrown in the Tallahatchie River with a with a. Um, Gin wrapped around his neck and the they when they finally found the body um they the state of mississippi did not want to release that body back to chicago but they had they did and the pullman carporters uh nikki giovanni has written a wonderful little book that um focus that talks about the role of the Pullman carporters and getting that body back to Chicago. The book is actually about Rosa Parks. She does this yeah. major interview with Rosa Parks and Rosa Parks says that she was thinking about Emmett Till while she was sitting in that seat and refusing to get up, but they get the body back to Chicago and Mrs. Till decides that she's going to have an open casket funeral. And she was supported in this by her Bishop, um, Bishop uh, Roberts of the Church of God in Christ, another historically black and, denomination. And um, I, I want to be in a second to go on to something else, but I, I think that the um, one of the important part of what um, Emmett Hill's mother did is um, for white people suddenly understood visually the violence. Yeah, because uh, because the um, Jet magazine took a picture of Emmett Till in that casket with that. She had a picture of her beautiful little boy propped up um, in the casket. And then you see this huge, misshapen, destroyed body. 
Um, and you, you, um, and so Jet Magazine took a picture and published it, and then the New York Times ran the picture, so it went out to the world. It was. It was a shock. Yeah, it was a shock for a lot of people, but it was also a consciousness raising for a lot of African-American children or teenagers as well, because, again, we were shielded by our parents. We didn't get to see the lynched bodies. We um, the undertakers knew the ministers knew the adults knew, but we didn't know. Uh, You are listening to change agents on WERUFM. My guest today is Cheryl Townsend. Uh, jokes, she uh, is the uh, John D. and Catherine T. Uh, MacArthur Professor Emeritus uh, of African American Studies and Sociology at Colby. Um, uh, she is an ordained minister. Um, and uh, uh, works in a uh, Baptist um, synagogue, excuse me, in um, Cambridge, um, and uh, has done a lot of uh, writing and work as well as teaching on issues relating to um, to race. So. I'm interested in uh, overall, what was, if there's anything you want to add to what was important from uh, the Black, what Black women in churches were doing in uh, during perhaps from 1959 or something up to 1968, perhaps. Well, um, it's it's not just Black women in churches. It's Black church women in civil rights organizations and in women's organizations. Uh, it, it, this, is, this is one of the pieces that I think um, is... Can, can be confusing. As I mentioned earlier, for instance, there is a book um, in our preliminary conversation. I mentioned a book by Joanne Gibson Robinson that was titled The Civil Rights Movement, um, The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. And she's writing from the perspective of the Women's Political Council in, in Montgomery, Alabama. They were an organization that had been ready to support a boycott for a number of years. A substantial portion of their members were members of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where at first the Reverend Vernon Johns and then when uh, then Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King came to pastor. So they were an activist core that was also part of that church. Um, Joanne Gibson Robinson was the person who ran off 40,000 leaflets for the boycott on the mimeograph machines. Um, Most of your listeners below a certain age do not know what a mimeograph machine is, but I saw them moving a Gestetner mimeograph machine one night when I was driving through Waterville, Maine, and they were loading it on the truck outside of the Salvation Army. And I pulled over, went over, looked at that Gestetner and genuflected because I was thinking of her running off, cutting those stencils and running off those 40,000 leaflets. But so these are all church women. Um, Ella Baker, who comes down and becomes the the, um, executive director, the first executive director for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. When she, she's from uh, Second Baptist in, um, she, she's an African-American Baptist, um, but the Fellowship of Reconciliation sent her there. And there were church folk involved with that, including Howard Thurman, who was an advisor to King, who was on the board. So 
it's not just what are women doing in churches. What are they do? What were women doing in churches in Montgomery? They were helping to organize the rides. They were cooking the food. We're now getting books about the uh, people who fed, who um, they sold food. Um, you mentioned growing up having this woman who lived in your house, who sometimes stayed with you, who was African-American when you all were little. And the first time you had fried chicken, you remember it heavenly. That was a food. That was one of the first um, portable foods that African-Americans used to raise money. That goes back into the 19th century. And it came through into the civil rights movement. Um, so it's not just what women were doing in churches, what were the missionary societies doing, et cetera, et cetera. Keep in mind that Rosa Parks was a stewardess in the AME church. And without being an ordained deacon or elder, it was one of the highest ranks um, that one could hold in church life in that denomination. Um, so stewards and stewardesses are like deacons and deaconesses in Baptist churches. So um, so, so the, so it's, it's an intercalated. It's like a tapestry. It's not just what were they doing in churches, but what were church folk doing? The fact that uh, when you see, and I recommend the, the series Eyes on the Prize, people need to see visually what was going on. When they have that first night, that first mass meeting that night, um, in that Baptist church and 5,000 people showed up. When you look at the camera panning out in the audience, the majority of the people there are women. And E.D. Nixon, who was a Pullman car porter, who had gone to Mrs. Parks and her husband and said, I think we can use your case to break down segregation. Um, he insisted, and Taylor Branch in his book, Parting the Waters, mentions this, that the ministers of the historically Black churches owed the women of the community the work of leadership because their salaries depended on these working women. So, so, so let me... Um, so it's, uh, it, yeah. Um, so what were women doing in churches? Everything. Um, was there was there a reason why um, women or being um, doing this kind of work if they were teachers and working for the Well, it's not the that state. they were doing this kind of work. Um, everybody focuses on who the spokespersons were, who were the visual leaders of something like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The women who were a part of the um, Women's Political Council in Montgomery were also teachers, and they either taught in the public schools or they taught, taught at Alabama State. If they became prominent, if they gave a press conference, if they spoke up about civil rights, they lost their jobs. Okay, so, so their livelihood. If the men spoke up, they're, they're being paid by the churches where they're holding the rallies. So let me make sure that I understand this. Um, that uh, People, uh, black teachers and uh, people who are working for uh, the state had to be very careful because the state would have fired them if they knew them that they were working for um, as civil rights activists. Yes. Yeah. That, that, precisely. And not only that, you people don't understand how thoroughly pervasive the um, racial oppression, the way, the way racial oppression operated in the South. If you were a white faculty member at an historically white university in the South and you started talking about racial equality, you got fired too. That's how deep that how that's when we're talking about this oppressive system it wasn't just keeping black and white people separate but it was keeping uh, black and white people silent about the injustice and you could die if you if 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 you spoke up people took their lives in their hands um and the leadership class for african americans is it's educate was at that time until and is still to a certain extent it's educators and those educators consisted of men and women, women who were teachers and men who were teachers and also who were preachers and pastors. And there's an historical foundation to 
that role as well. It wasn't just the sexism. It wasn't just the patriarchy. Um, but it was all. It, it, it's a larger complex that we have to be careful. And I, I get deeply frustrated at the simplicity at which people try to explain things. And it was far more complex. Yeah. Well, that you've made that really clear, and it's important. Um, you are listening to Change Agents on WERUFM. My guest today is Cheryl Towns Jilks. She uh, is the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor Emerita of African American Studies and Sociology at Colby College. Uh, she's an ordained Baptist minister. Um, she's an assistant to the pastor of the Union Baptist Church in uh, in Cambridge and is involved in um, a number of other important things into the into the future. Um, uh, I, I want to sort of move on to a a different uh, issue. You you spent um, quite a number of years uh, teaching at Colby. Um, 1987 to 19, what, no, to 2022. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's definitely a good, a good, good year, a, a good number of years. Um, and, uh, and you're teaching about racism, you're teaching sociology. Um, I would imagine that you have imparted knowledge to students that they um, had never heard of from well, you. I tried to, one course that I taught, um, I, I, I taught every year, except the years I was on sabbatical, was a course called African-American Culture in the United States. And it was an overly ambitious course that tried to address African-American culture in one semester. But routinely in their final exam, some students would ask the question, why didn't I learn any of this? Because they had gone to all of these nice, fine, expensive um, private schools, boarding schools, Catholic schools, et cetera. And they were like, why didn't I know any of this beforehand? And if they asked that question, I felt like I had done my job. Hey, can, you, can you remember one moment where the light went on for a student? Um, no, because it was, um, oh, yeah. Oh, there was one. Oh, now this is just, the, 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 there was, you know, and you know that lights are going on when, you know, something. But one of the things I pointed to in, I, I taught a course called Civil Rights, Black Power, and Social Change. And one of the things that I pointed out was that one of the responses to Brown v. Board of Education was the proliferation of private, largely Baptist academies throughout the South for white students. This was the response to segregation, the formation of these Baptist or Christian schools for white children to go to. And one student who was sitting there in the class, all of a sudden, she just, she, she basically almost screamed and she said, oh my God, the school I went to was founded in such and such a year. It's one of those schools. And she had no idea that her Christian school. So, so the, the, this, um, just to make sure I've got it right, that um, when um, uh, segregated schools were um, being stopped after segregated public schools, um, um, then um, then those um, students would, in white students, uh, would go leave the public schools and mm -hmm. uh, and go to. The private schools. Newly formed private schools, yes, yeah. that were Baptist Academy, church-related. There's a book about Ports, I think it's Portsmouth, Virginia. I, um, I'm um, i not 
I'm not sure. It's a it's a it's a city in Virginia where they segregated and basically the white people looted the public school system of supplies and equipment. And because there were uh, areas of the South where we have to segregate, we're not segregate. We have to desegregate. We're not desegregating. They just shut down the school system. And there was an area in Virginia where that happened. And so, uh, in fact, uh, Reverend Vernon Johns, who was pastor of Dexter, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, had a niece who was in that town, and she moved to Alabama to go to school and live with her uncle, who was a Reverend Johns. But um, and I think they're putting a statue; they're replacing a statue in Statuary Hall or someplace. They're replacing a statue of a Confederate hero with a statue of this 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 young woman but um th- that was the response and so uh white people formed their own schools this is what has been the battle of the rise of the new right when we're talking about um these white evangelicals they are the legatees of the white christian segregationists whose response was to form private schools and then insist on wanting to have vouchers and uh wanting to um you know, basically wanting to have tax exemption at the same time that they have um, segregation policies, and the civil and civil rights law is fairly clear. Um, the only um, organizations that have an exemption to the 1964 Civil Rights Act are fraternal organizations and churches. But you know, you want to get federal funds. You cannot be a fraternal organization or a church. You want tax exemption. You cannot be a fraternal organization. You can be a church and churches are free to, um, you know, decide who will be their people. But if you form a school and you want that school to have access to public funds, then you cannot um you, you cannot violate the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, it, it's an important and that point. Bob Jones University, that was Liberty um, in um, Jerry Falwell had black activists arrested when they visited his churches. I know one of the, the, the men who was head of the Lynchburg SCLC. He's now retired and living in Texas, but he was one of the people that Jerry Falwell had hauled off to jail, another Baptist minister when he visited the church. So these these segregationists all of a sudden became good Christians who wanted to, um, you know, change America, take make America great again. Um, That's where they came from. Yeah. That's who so they are. I want to just step back again a little to, to talk about um, uh, teaching to Colby. Um, well, that was one of the points at which a light went off was when this student realized that yes. she had gone to school in a segregation academy and she had not one single segregationist bone in her body. She wouldn't have been sitting in that classroom if she had, because I always got the volunteers. My courses were not required. Okay, I always had students who wanted to be there. And that was such good fun. Uh, and and uh, I would imagine that um, there are scores of students who were awakened to uh, what happened in the South and and in the North uh, uh, because of you. Well, the materials that we read and talked about in class, you know. It's... Yes, but I mean, I, um, I've been teaching, uh, well, for a long time, over 20 years um, as well on uh, similar topics on uh, n- not on that particular one, but uh, on issues relating to human rights problems. Um, and uh, I, I, it's so important that that be part of a curriculum. Yeah. The, the work that you have done has had to have reached and changed people. And we need to ask the question, why are there so many militant people committed to keeping precisely that kind of teaching out of the curriculum? So let's... Um, curriculum wars that we're having well, let's, now. Let's, let's talk, let's talk about that now. So I think uh, 
uh, for those of you who are listening, um, are aware, aware in uh, communities around the country, including in Maine, where there are people who don't want um, race to be talked about, that um, uh, don't want to have uh, any discussion uh, about LGBTQ people. Um, there's, uh, um, and uh, some of these are, uh, schools end up changing. Uh, so where do you think this is coming from? Where do I think what is coming from you? Where the the opposition to ha having um, race discussed in the schools? Yes, it's coming from the current militancy, the the militant movement of the um, the legatees. Oh, I call them the legatees of the segregationists. Um, many who are acting, not realizing that they are legatees of the segregationists. They just want to make America great again. And they don't want to t talk about anything that might, quote unquote, make white children uncomfortable. So you mischaracterize teaching the history, the real history of the United States as something that might make white children uncomfortable. And you get their parents to run in there and say that I don't want my child to feel uncomfortable. You will not teach this. This is not new. But the Boston desegregation case, um, um, when you go into the history of the segregated schools in Boston, there was a teacher named Jonathan Kozol who wrote a book titled Death at an Early Age. He was fired from teaching and he was fired from teaching as a substitute teacher because he taught a poem by Langston Hughes in a classroom the classroom full of black children. There was one white child in that classroom. Her parents didn't like the poem and they complained to the school committee and he was fired. Yeah, he, he this was. Is a... not new. This is not new. Yeah. Exclusionary practices of, um, of surrounding the black experience and black history are tied to the exclusionary practices to keeping black people out of white space. It's an effort to um, reimagine in a very disturbing way the history of this country relating to, to um, ra racial violence and discrimination against Actually, it's the resistance to reimagining um, the history of this country. I mean, that, that, um, that that's what's so problematic. We have to have so many courses, we have to have so many um, special approaches, pr primarily because people have effectively erased things. Um, that wonderful little book titled Lies My Teacher Told Me is a very helpful handbook for understanding the way in which um, exclusionary practices regarding curriculum have worked to build a very, um, how do you say, limited historical consciousness in the United States. Um, James Lowen's book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. He just recently died, a wonderful man. So you, um, uh, let me remind people uh, that uh, this is um, Change Agents on WERUFM. My guest today is Cheryl Townsend Jokes. She uh, has taught at to teach at Colby College, um, focusing on um, race and sociology, um, is a Baptist minister, um, and uh, has a number of other projects in in the works. Uh, What do you what do you find uh, important for you and useful for you about in a, in addition to everything else you're doing being a a minister? Well, um, I don't think of it so much as in addition to all everything else that I'm doing. It's very much an integral part of what I do. When I um I I I attended seminary while I was also a tenure track professor at 
Boston University. And when I had my ordination service, um, in, in, in addition to what is usually included, the charge to the candidate and the charge to the church, um, I also had charge to the scholar because that was also what I was doing. And it was, and, and so I'm a sort of um, scholar of the church to the church. Um, so, so, the, so, so it, it is all sort of there, very connected, but it also provides me with a way of connecting to a wide variety of African-American religious experiences as I write about the importance of the African-American religious experience from certain angles. And so, can you can you talk a little bit about, um, I, I, I know you've been um, coming from many angles on uh, your research and studying and teaching on uh, um, black churches. Um, can you, uh, is there anything that is, uh, I'm sure there are dozens, but of things that uh, that your research has brought you to that were either not being understood by others or even something that was new to you? Well, one of my, um, and I, 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 I won't go into the long story attached to it, but 1980 was a year where my first three articles, which are sort of, and I sort of look back at them and realize they were the pillars of what I do. I published an article on Black women's community work. I published an article on the way in which ideas about race and ethnicity were changed and challenged by the civil rights and Black power movements. And I wrote a paper which became published in 1980. I, I Obviously, if it became published in 1980, it, it, it the first drafts were written a while back in the and the article was titled the black, uh, the black church is a therapeutic community and i sort of talked about the way in which it provided um basically helped keep african americans sane in a very insane context of violence and white supremacy could, could you give me some examples of of that i think this is really important well one of the things about attending an african american church is you get to hear sermons that let you know that you're not crazy in terms of thinking there's something wrong with the society, um, that you hear an alternative narrative to the belittling uh, commentary that um, comes from outside. You have an alternative world in which you're encouraged and told that you're fully human. One of the famous um, spirituals that I love to quote uh, because this, and and for the years, all the years that I taught at Colby, one element of our course, African-American culture in the United States, I told the students, we're going to use all these nice academic theories of culture. But one of the theories of culture that I'm going to use is the theory of culture that your parents used when they took you to the symphony and they said they were going to expose you to culture. I said, I'm going to expose you to aspects of African-American culture and you will know what a spiritual is when you leave this class. So we spent time on the spirituals and there's a spiritual title. If anybody asks you who I am, who I am, who I am. If anybody asks you who I am, tell them I'm a child of God. So when you live in a world that tries to tell you that you're less than human, that you're not human, that you're not entitled to certain things, you come to a religious space that says, yes, you are human and you are entitled. You are my brother. You are my sister. And when they call you by your first name and call you other names out in the world, we're going to call you Mr. and Mrs. and Deacon and Deaconess. And um, listen to your voice when it comes to leadership in the community. So it, it it was an alternative world that basically was a counter narrative to the dismissal of African American humanity. So that's one of the things that uh, about um, and when when I realized that, and nowadays there's a um, book out. Oh, I I just want to stick with this. Um, it's it sounds like that you were 
providing information yourself towards students, um, uh, perhaps uh, in uh, not only in Colby, but in when you were um, teaching uh, uh, teaching in church, um, giving giving them that sense of um, yes, you are, and yes, you have. But that, that, that's what I grew up with. I mean, when I was talking about that article that I wrote, the Black Church is a Therapeutic Community, one of the things that I talk about is the way in which it did that historically. Um, the um, it, that, that was one of the realities of religious spaces. And so when you take a song like um, if anybody asks you who I am, tell them I'm a child of God. That's a that's a song that circulated in Afro African American oral tradition before the Civil War, and Black people were already telling themselves that in order to maintain their sanity, in order to be able to survive in a context that was inhumane. So, you know, I you know I'm sharing what I also garnered, you know, because I'm also African American and Christian. And um, in in your current work at the um, at the church in Cambridge, are you are you working with young people? Are you um, what, what are you right. having? Now, other- I I I, te- I mainly work with adults. When I'm uh, up until COVID hit and we went to virtual, I was uh, working in the adult Sunday school class and doing workshops as um asked as requested to do by the pastor so i would talk about history of african american women i also do a lot of um you know i i i'm a preacher and so i preach but i preach from a perspective um that is centered in my experience as an african american one sunday a number of years ago when some book came out that tried to explain that african americans were um genetically destined to um, have lower IQs. And I, in the middle of my sermon, I just um, happened to offer some critique of that book, which, you know, that's usually something you do in an academic setting. But I I was angry and I, I mentioned it. And afterwards, one of my deacons, one of the deacons of my church, who is from Bogalusa, Louisiana, this beautiful, lovely working class man came up to me and he said, Rev, I'm so glad you told me that I wasn't born to be stupid. And you know, Doc, when you preach, we expect to learn something. So the um, you know, the intercalation of education and the gospel, um, so much so that Leon Litwack in his book, Been in the Storm So Long, which and he, that also takes its title from a spiritual. Um, the chapter on the church and education, he put them together in the same chapter because they could not be separated. They could not be separated. Um, and um, so I'm, it, it's not just me. I'm, I'm part of a tradition where that connection is. Very- so, so in many, in many ways um, uh, in, in your church, perhaps. Uh, it, it's in churches throughout because for instance, um, I, I mentioned the church that I grew up in. It was a congregation that was formed in 1878. We're still in our original building, 1883. One of my other friends who grew up in the church, who's now AME, who's a co-pastor at an AME church in Fort Washington, Maryland, has an annual um, conference that until COVID used to bring together 3,000 African-American women from churches all over the country, in addition to a hardcore um, segment of the Virginia, Maryland, um, Washington, D.C. area of the AME church. That's a lot of people for, you know, you know, concentrated education about be, being Black, Christian, and women that then goes back to these churches as women who are missionaries, women who are um, teachers, women who are Sunday school teachers, uh, go back and share that material. And it brings in speakers from a variety of traditions. So you, it, 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 it's a large tradition. And, you know, she grew up with me and, and, and she's, um, she's made this incredible contribution 
through um, these annual conferences. I, I forget how many years those conferences have been going on. Is something like so? That you know, that's that's how African American activist Christians connect with one another. Time goes quickly during this this hour. We we still have a a few minutes. Um, I I think that uh, people who are engaged in the kind of work that you are doing and many of the people who come on my show um, are trying to uh, to make change um, and for all of us who do that work sometimes it doesn't happen and tragedies uh, do you have um, a time or an incident where you know it just made you feel like like where is God or where where are people um, the low the low point did you, have you had those moments well one big well I think for all African Americans who were alive when I you know in my generation April 4th 1968 is a key and critical moment um on April 3rd 1968 there were two black men in America with PhDs in systematic theology. On April 5th, 1968, there was only one left because one of them had been murdered and that was Dr. King. Um, the other one is a man by the name of James Cone, um, who is considered the father of black theology. Um, he and I became colleagues and friends and um, and he had an impact on my life. But that low point for many of us is that April 4th. I was with my mother-in-law-to-be. We were planning a wedding. And I got married in a church draped in black. Uh, we took some of our wedding pictures next to signs with quotations from Dr. King. Um, fast forward to Colby. There is a book that came out uh, titled Testament of Hope, which is uh, the, the essential writings of Martin Luther King, edited by another colleague and friend who's no longer with us, James Melvin Washington. And I was preparing something. And I just remember having, I, I was working with the book, I was reading something that King had written, and I remember feeling this deep wave of grief just wash over me. And I just said out loud, I wish Dr. King was still here. And the next day, a student walked into my office who was a residence hall leader, and they had been tasked with asking professors to put together book seminars to teach in the residence halls. And Amy walked into my office and I looked at her and she said, can you, would you be willing to do this? And could you suggest a book? And I immediately said, Testament of Hope, the essential writings of Martin Luther King. And we organized that book into six sessions. And that book became the foundation for a course that became the sociology of Dr. Martin Luther King. So that's one example. Well, thank you. Um, we have um, come to the end of this. I wish- um, That hour went by fast. Yes, it, 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 it does. And I, I think we could have stayed for another hour um, and maybe we'll, we'll do it um, after we- um, turn off the uh, the recording but um uh, today's guest has been Cheryl Townsend jokes she was a professor at Colby Hall uh, of Colby College for many years she currently works as an assistant Baptist minister in uh, Cambridge Massachusetts uh, we have been talking about the role of 
Black women in advocacy, both in their church and beyond. Come, come, Cheryl, thank you for um, a remarkable conversation. You're quite welcome. And I, I hope that somebody gains something that will send them to a bookstore to look up some names and some authors that I've mentioned, and we can all do some growing. I hope you're right, and I think it's true.